So I grew up in a, a, a small rural um, country town in South Central Kentucky. And so my town was about 1,400 people, so pretty tight-knit. And, and my mom's family has lived in that town for a long time, generation after generation. A tremendous amount of roots has been put down in that city. And so people have seen my mom uh, grow up and they, they saw me grow up. And so anytime we'd go somewhere when I was a little boy, people would stop us and they would say, oh my gosh, you look just like your mama. You look just like she did, but you look just like she does now. And let me tell you, as a seven-year-old boy, that hits in a weird place because you're like, man, do I look like a woman or does my mom look like a seven-year-old boy? This is weird either way. Um, but it also makes you feel good when they follow that. My mom was, uh, she was the, the county fair queen. And so they would say, well, she was so pretty. And so I thought, well, maybe that means I'm a pretty handsome, pretty good-looking kid. And so that, you know, puffed you up a little bit. As I got older, people stopped saying that I was pretty. Uh, and I started to look a little bit more like my dad. Now, that's not a knock to my dad, but his family, we had a little more, a little more of a Scandinavian look to us. We, we were built to... to go through the harsh winters. And so, uh, let's put it that way. And so, you know, we got a little hair on my chest and obviously a little hair on my face. And I got this nice protrusive brow, just this real, you know, Viking of a guy. And a lot less people said I look like my mom and more people just kind of started saying I look goofy. And so, uh, but we all probably in, interact with that in some way or another. Most of us look like our parents. That's just kind of how it is. And so we get this. I'm going to take you back to ninth grade biology for a little bit. We get this. We have genotypes and phenotypes in, in our DNA. Genotype, you see the word gene in there. Your genotype has both the dominant and the recessive genes. So... Uh, you have kind of two things. You could have a, a black hair gene and a, and a blonde hair gene. But one of them is going to show itself to the world. One of them is going to show. And so I, I got this blue eye gene. I've got blue eyes. My son, Hall, he's got blue eyes. And so that just kind of happens to us. Something we're going to show to the world. That's the phenotype. And so I think we look at this passage today that we're about to look at. And we see John is going to tell us. As Christians, we have something very similar to our phenotype. We've got something that the world looks at us and says, oh yeah, that's a Christian, because I can see it. One of my first uh, weeks here, I was in Jay's office, and if you've ever been in Jay's office, you probably got lost through the maze of all the stuff that's in there, first of all. But, but one thing that caught my eye, he's got a picture up on his shelf, and it's Eight kids, and, and from about 10 feet away, they all look exactly the same. Brown hair, I mean, I, from 10 feet away, it's like, man, I, I, that just looks like a brown hair kind of blob. Maybe that's just, maybe I need to get my eyes checked, but it's just like, man, your kids look astonishingly like each other and astonishingly like the two of you. We all kind of have that in one way or another. 
whether we're Beauxcharts or not, we all kind of have, we look like our parents. And so John's going to explain to us how we look like Christ. And so if you remember where we've just come from, Matt preached on last week. First John 4 through 10 was last week. And so he got to the end of that and he says, you've got two ultimate families that you can be a part of, two cosmic families that you can be a member of. You can be a child of God. Cool. Sign me up for that one. That one sounds great. Or you can be a child of the evil one is how it's written. And as I'm making my notes for this week, I write child of God versus other. Because child of the evil one sounds real scary and I don't even like to write it. So I was like, I feel really uncomfortable. But that's what John says. That's the wording he uses. Child of God or child of the evil one. And so he's going to keep working through that. He's just told us that there are these two cosmic families. And now he's going to show us the family trait of each of them. Okay, so let's get in the passage this morning. Let's read. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 3. If you have a Bible, um, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screens. If you want to use the Bible in the pack of the pew, it's going to be on page 1022. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one. So let's read this morning. 1 John 3, 11 through 18 will be our passage today. And it says this, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, I'm actually going to stop right there. I didn't plan on I, I'm going to stop right there and I'm going to let us know. I'm going to ruin the sermon for you. You can go home after this if you want to, but don't do that. He's going he's gonna to prep this whole thing and he's going to say, The family trait of a Christian is love. And you've heard that all the way from the beginning. And when you, we've heard John use this language from the beginning a couple times in this book already. And, and so far he's been using it as from the first time you heard about the gospel message. This is at its root. And it is. If you look at the message of Jesus, this love message runs all the way through it. And so John is saying, you've heard this from the beginning. You know this. Because remember what he's also just told us. He's told us, we're children of God. Don't question it. You know that you're a child of God. Now go live it. Because remember we were talking about righteousness. Now go and be righteous. Your righteousness doesn't make you a child of God. You are a child of God. Now go and be righteous. And he's giving us that same thing here. You've heard this from the beginning. You know this message. You don't have to question whether you're a child of God or not. You don't have to question where you fall. Because you look like the father. In the same way that, that none of the Beauxcharts have to question who their parents are. They look just like them. They don't have to question who they are. We don't have to question whose child we are because we look like our father. All right, we can keep reading. We can go back. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and start it again, okay? Verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we pass out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 
everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That is a mighty hard passage. Thanks, Matt, for leaving this week. But we look at that and we say, okay, all right, we, we've, got, we've got the general idea. We, we sort of know where he's coming from. Love is our, our main, our dominant trait. Love is what we need to express to the world. And, and let me tell you a really great thing about the Bible. And let me tell you a really great thing about God. God is never going to tell you to go love without telling you that you are loved first. That's, that's what we just heard in that, cha- in that portion that Matt preached last week. You are loved. God loves you. You are his child. And now he's going to say, now go love. He's never going to tell you to love until he's told you he loves you first. That's a really important thing for us to look at. That's really what we grab from verse 11. And then we look at at 12 through 14 and we get this story. He's going to give us this negative example for what we shouldn't be. And so he tells us the story of Cain and Abel. Now, this is a story he's using. He said, you've heard this from the beginning. He's going to jump us all the way back to Genesis 4 for this story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were brothers. They are the sons of Adam and Eve, the first two people on earth. So these are like the first, the first sons. Well, so Abel, he is a produce farmer. That guy's, sorry, I'm sorry. Abel is a, is a shepherd. He, he's raising livestock. He's... Um, he's bringing them all in. He's got uh, tons of, of everything because he's got to provide for all four of them probably. And then you've got Cain, and he's a produce farmer. He's raising up grain and all that kind of stuff. And it comes time for them to bring their sacrifice before the Lord. And, and Abel brings his sacrifice of an animal. God looks at Abel and looks at his sacrifice and said, that's righteous. You and your sacrifice are righteous. So Cain brings his sacrifice of, uh, of his fruits and vegetables. And for whatever reason, probably because God's like me and prefers meat, but who really knows? But for whatever reason, God looks at Cain's sacrifice and at Cain and says, this is not righteous. This sacrifice is not righteous. And so Cain begins to become jealous of his brother. That's what this passage tells us. Cain begins to become jealous of his brother Abel. And he's jealous of his brother's righteousness. And his jealousy moves to hatred. And his hatred grows so much so that he murders his brother. Now thankfully, this is the story of what we're not supposed to look like. If you ask my mom, she would probably say this is maybe a little bit what my household looked like when I was growing up. I have an older brother, and we we did a lot of fighting. I never murdered him. Um, Thought about it a couple times. Um, But we did a lot of fighting. Thankfully, those days are behind us. 
Just kidding. If he were here today, I'm sure we would get in an argument about something. It's just kind of how it goes. But if you have a brother, if you have siblings, you know siblings are good at rubbing you the wrong way. They're really, really talented at that. My brother is 31, and he's still really talented at that. Um, And what's the worst is, is when they do something good, and you just think, oh, man, it's just like a dagger in you. Oh, now mom's gonna like you more. There's a lot of what happens in this Cain and Abel story. Cain is jealous of his brother. Jealous of a way he is somehow righteous and Cain is not. And so hatred grows, hatred turns to murder. And then we get this really weird verse in 13 and and it says that the world is going to do the same thing to you. Watch out. And really what he's getting at there is he's saying, no matter how righteous you are, no matter how much you think you, you've removed yourself, no matter how much the world's going to hate you because the world is just like Cain. We look at, at scripture, Cain is sort of our prototype for sinner. We look at sinner, Cain's going to jump to the top of every list in every book of the Bible. Cain is number one sinner. And he's saying the world just like Cain. And so here's the interesting point of this passage. Just like our family trait is love, the family trait of the children of the evil one is hate. John is going is to put these two things and he's going to say these are the two family traits. These are the two dominant traits of the two cosmic families. Love and hate. And so he says the world, who we, again we've seen John use this world language, that's Everybody who's not a believer, their dominant trait is going to be hate, and they're going to hate you just like Cain hated Abel. And the reason why, he says in verse 14, is because they have death and we have life. Life equals love, death equals hate. And so he says, you as Christians, you as, as children of God, you can't hate because that's like you're murdering them. That's like you're condemning them back to this death. You aren't a death giver. You're a life giver. That's what your love does. Your love is life giving. You can't be a murderer. That has no place in the kingdom. That has no place in the life of the Christian. And so he's warning us that our life can't look anything like Cain. So that's what he does all through that. That's what he says in verse 15. And that's where he's worked us to. He's taken hate and he's elevated it to this point of murder. He's taken it to this extreme level. So some of us in here might be saying, I've never murdered anybody. I sure as heck haven't murdered my brother. And you know, I I probably don't even hate anybody. Hey, that's not, that's not me. Well, if you remember back, the way that John has previously defined hate is withholding love. That's a pretty steep definition. If you are withholding love from another person, John is saying, and Jesus too, John's pulling this straight from Jesus. John is saying, it's like you murdered them. It's that serious. That's how serious our family trait is. And so John is taking hate and love very seriously. And now, 
I want us to see that. I want us to see hate. I want us to see what it looks like so our lives don't look like it. But I don't want to dwell on it this morning because I don't want us going home and, quit. man, am I hating people? What can I do to begin to, what can I, how can I change my life? How can I make myself more righteous? How can I, I don't want to dwell on hate. Earlier, I, we talked about the Bosharts. They all got this dark, dark brown hair. They don't question what color top looks good with blonde hair. They don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Because that's not their family, that's not their family trait. We're not going to spend a lot of time looking at what it means to hate somebody. That's not us. We're going to look at what it means to love. So the world has taken this love message and they've, they've twisted it a little bit. Most of us, when we hear love, it's this mushy, gushy love. I love you, you love me. We, we really like the feelings aspect of it. And you see most every dominant religion, and I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who would disagree with the golden rule. That's probably how they would define love. Do to others that what you'd want done to you. And that's how they're defining love. And you know what? That's great. I wish more of the world actually lived like that were true. That would be wonderful. As Christians, I mean, Jesus says that. We see that golden rule even in our Bible. But the pesky thing about this passage is, is it takes that one step farther. Our love is not just due to others what you'd want done to you. Our love is one step more. And so in verse 16, we see Jesus say, or we see John say, that we know love because we can look at Jesus. That's how we know love. And so some of us hear that and we say, awesome. I, I want to love like Jesus. That sounds great. Jesus, man, he, he loved people. He healed people. I'd love to heal people. Man, Jesus loved those people so much at the wedding at Cana that he, he turned water into wine. That sounds real cool. Jesus loved people so much that he had empathy and sympathy for them. He cared for them. That sounds great. I can be about that. This moralistic Jesus, that sounds awesome. I can love like that. That sounds wonderful. Except for when we look at the whole of Jesus' life. That's kind of when we start to get a little unsure if, if we really want to look like this Jesus guy. Because John says here in, this, in verse 16, he says, yeah, to love like Jesus, that means ultimate self-sacrifice. Jesus loved so much that, that he died for us. And so John says in verse 16, yeah, yeah, likewise, you've got to be ready to do the same thing. You've got to be ready to go, to go die for your brothers and sisters. You've got to go die for those people in need. And now, I don't know about y'all, I've not had a lot of opportunities in my life where I've had the chance to go die for someone when I was about eight years old, I saw a toddler fall into a pool. I pulled him out, brought him to his mom, and I felt like a hero for a week because it was awesome. Last week, Anna wanted to go to Taco Bell. I stopped her, hero for a long time. I'm a lifesaver, people. That's what I do. I save lives, okay? But really, most of us don't have opportunities in our life to really risk everything for the people around us. 
We really don't have those times. And so John's going to address that. Because he knows, even back then, they didn't have those opportunities. Even then, they weren't going and sacrificing all the time. And so John says this in verse 17, I think the most challenging verse, maybe in this entire book. He said, this is what love is. I'm going to read it so that I don't mess it up. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? I think that might be the hardest, hardest verse in this entire book. Because we look at it and, and immediately we begin to try to find some loopholes and caveats. That's our natural inclination. It's mine. That was mine this week. I wanted, the first one that I went to was, all right, who's my brother? I mean, maybe he's talking about Christian brothers. Maybe I only need to help Christian brothers. Maybe that's what he's talking about. Well, he's really using this brother's language as this family talk. And so we really actually kind of can get rid of that. But really, if we look back at what Jesus said, Jesus seems to preach that we love everyone, even our enemies. All right, so we, we nix that one. That's not a loophole I can find. Well, well then, we, then we begin to kind of go through it section by section. We say, okay, what else, what else can I find? What other loophole can I find? Man, the world's goods. What does the world's goods do? I don't have a lot of money. Okay, cool. I must be good. I must not have to do much about it. Well, you're right. I don't have a lot of money. But I do have time. And I can, I've got food. And I've got a house. And I, I, can, I can care for somebody. And I can pray for somebody. And I can be empathetic for somebody. And I can, I can really look at what it means to maybe help someone who is in need. Okay, that's, that's another one we checked off. That's not, that's not valid. Oh, man, what does it mean to close my heart against somebody? Maybe that just means I stop having sympathy for them. Maybe that's what it means. Maybe that just means I'm just not empathetic towards their situation. But I'm empathetic towards people. I'm a good guy. I feel, I feel bad. Who cares? I know my sermon. I feel bad when... When things happen to people, thank you, Ken. I feel like this is, this is not talking to me, but we really, it's trying to get away. Maybe I'm just supposed to preach a different sermon. It really, it looks like that means, if we look at the next verse, it looks like it means we got to do something about it. Oh, well, no, no, no. In the middle of that verse, it says, when you see somebody. See, I don't have to go seek these people out. You're right. You don't have to go seek these things out. But you got to see them. And here's maybe where my challenge is going to be for us today. I think a lot of us, me included, and when I went through that list of all the loopholes I tried to find, I tried to find those this week. Let me tell you, I wanted to excuse myself. I wanted to get out of this. I don't want to have to love people like this. But that's kind of what it looks like I have to do. And so 
I'm in this with you. So it says when you see your brother in need, how many of us consciously or subconsciously have placed ourselves in situations where we no longer see the needs that are around us? How many of us said, you know what, I don't want to shop at that grocery store anymore. That's in a bad part of town. You know what, I don't want to get my gas from that gas station anymore. Too many people hit me up to buy them gas there. I definitely don't want to live in that neighborhood. I don't want, I don't want to go to that part of town. I don't want to, I don't want to watch that channel or show anymore. It shows too much need. I wasn't seeing anything before, but now I see it all. Hey, I haven't been in Greenville too long, so I don't know if, how much authority I can have on this topic, but we've got real needs here in Greenville. There's real poverty in Greenville. There's real homelessness in Greenville. There's real hunger in Greenville. There's real orphans in Greenville. There are needs that we can meet. There's real loneliness in Greenville. There are needs we can see, and some of us have the world's goods to be able to open our hearts to them. So how many of us are, are blinding ourselves to these needs that are around us and falsely excusing not helping? I, I, think, I think quite a few of us. I, I know I do it myself. And so we see in verse 18, this next verse, he says, you know, when you see those and when you can help, it's not good enough to just think about it. It's not good enough to just love in word and in thought. You've got to love in action. You've got to love in deed and in truth. All we have to look at to know that that's true is the story of Jesus. It would have been nothing would have meant nothing if Jesus had seen us in our condition and said, "Mm, those poor, poor people there on earth, stinks for them. But they got themselves in that situation, so they chose it. That just stinks for them. I hate that. It does no good. Jesus saw us in our condition and acted Every time we see this love thrown around, it's always paired with action. It always means we've got to go do something about it. Jesus saw us in our sin. He saw us in our condition. He saw us dead, and he acted. He came to earth. He lived his life perfectly. He died as the sacrifice for our sins. He acted. His love is not mushy-gushy. His love means something. It does something. It's indeed and in truth. And he's telling us, if you see a need and you have the means to do it, do it. That's what it looks like to love. That's what it looks like. And so our love is meant to be active. We can't just sit back and watch people in need. We can't just be apathetic. Because apathy is withholding love, and we just define that withholding love is hate. We can't just sit back and watch. We have to do something. And so today, I'm, I'm going to finish out. You're going to find yourself in one of these three camps, okay? Camp number one, you've been a believer for a long time. You're a mature Christian. When I, when I gave that idea of one of you, somebody is 
child of God. Other people are uh, children of the evil one. You said, oh, no question. I'm a child of God. I got this. Yeah, I've known love from the beginning. I'm ready to go. Okay, if you find yourself in that camp, your takeaway from today is, all right, what, in what ways am I blinding myself to the needs around me? What ways, man, can I take a different route on the way to work? Can we go to a different grocery store? What, what does this look like for me? What's it look like for me to risk something? Because that definition of love that he's just given us, and really in, chapter, in verses 16 and 17, this love is surrendering those things that have value to you so that you can enrich the life of another person. So what's got value to me? What can I risk? What can I surrender? Because let me tell you, Christian, our lives are not lives of comfort. Our lives are lives of surrender and risk. If we're supposed to look like Christ who came and risked everything, our lives are supposed to be lives of surrender and sacrifice. So what can I surrender and sacrifice? Is it my reputation? Maybe it is my money. Maybe it's a room in my house. Maybe it's some food. How am I blinding myself? What can I surrender? Maybe you're in the second camp. Maybe you're a new believer. Maybe you, you just haven't really gotten super serious about this. When I gave that situation, child of God, child of the evil, when you, you oh yeah, 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 I'm, I'm a child of God. I, not long ago was I over there, but I, I, I fall into this camp. I want to challenge you to go a little deeper in your faith. I, w- I want you to really see what's around you. L- look in your normal daily life. Pray that God would open your eyes to that coworker, that checkout person, that guy on the side of the street, that God will open your eyes and give him eyes like he has. Eyes to see needs and eyes to be able to help those needs. Pray that he would, he would change us to be able to go in love in that way. In the third camp, man, you would say, man, when you said child of the evil one, that was mean. Because that's me. I, I'm not a child of God, but man, I'm not evil. Child of the evil one? Whoa, that word is way too close to devil, and I don't like that. Maybe you find yourself in this camp that I'm not a Christian. What do I do with this? Here's what you do with it. Our example of love is Christ. We will always fail at that example. We're not going to hit there, but lucky for you, you get to look at Jesus and not necessarily look at me. You get to see Jesus' surrender, Jesus' sacrifice up on that cross for your sins. You were dead in sin. You were in the muck, in the mire, and he pulled you out. He came and died for your sins. That's what you get to look at. Some of you may be saying, well, what does his death do? Like, that's silly. I heard a story this week. A guy's at the end of the pier fishing, and another dude comes up and walks up behind him and, and jumps into the ocean and he thrashes around after a while, and he drowns. And the guy says, oh, that's so sad. How pitiful that situation must be. Why would he do something like that? What's going on there? What's happening? He has pity on the person. It's just so sad. The same situation. Guy sitting on the end of the pier. Guy comes up and walks. But, but the guy sitting on the pier fishing, he falls in. The guy walking up does the same. He jumps in the water thrashed around, somehow gets the fishing guy up back up on the pier, but, but the guy who saved him died. And now the guy who's fishing says, oh my goodness, 
What, what sacrifice, what love must he have had for me? That he sacrificed everything to be able to save me. How great a love must that be? That's the same situation that we all found ourselves in. We were in the water, doomed. In our sin, lost. And so if that's you, today we, we are giving you this message of love saying, he came to die for your sins. His sacrifice makes the relationship right. His sacrifice pardons your sin. You are made righteous and justified. All you've got to do is call him Lord. That's all we got to do. One of those three camps. But our example is still Christ. Our family trait, we get from him. We are called to go and love in deed and in truth. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your love that you would, you would risk everything for us. You wouldn't just stop with words and thoughts, but you would, you would risk it all up until the point of death. Father, we pray for, um, for those in this room today that haven't made that decision to follow you. I pray that they would see your ultimate sacrifice, that they would be able to see you in us, that they would, they would know that you are worthy, they would know that you are king, they would know that you have Love them so dearly. We pray that you would change our lives and push us to love. Give us the Holy Spirit to know how and when. Make us people of love. In your name we pray. Amen.